Section 37 of Norway, Sweden, Denmark, Iceland, Greenland and the Search for the Poles. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Max Schörlinge. The World's Story, Volume 8. Norway, Sweden, Denmark, Iceland, Greenland and the Search for the Poles. Edited by Eva March Tappan. Section 37. Gustavus Vasa, the Savior of Sweden, 1520. By William Widgery Thomas Jr. Among the noblemen who were beheaded on that bloody November day was one Erik Johansson. He surely was a man stout of heart, for even as he knelt with the executioner behind him, a messenger came offering him pardon. But brave Erik replied, My comrades are honorable gentlemen. I will, in God's name, die the death with them. The next moment his head fell upon the paving of the marketplace. Erik's son, Gustavus, had also been summoned to attend the coronation, and complete amnesty was promised him. But, wiser than his father, he stayed away. The news of the bloodbath soon reached Gustavus in his hiding place at the castle of Gripsholm, and he instantly crossed the Mala Lake and fled to the remote province of Dalekarlia. There is no more romantic chapter in Swedish history than that which recounts the adventures of Gustavus in the Dales. Everywhere throughout the province you come upon traces of this patriot leader. Disguising himself in a homespun suit of vaad mal, chopping his hair squarely off so that it hung at even lengths all around his head up to the manor of the district, donning a round hat and throwing a narrow Swedish axe over his shoulder, Young Gustavus started forth one bleak November morning in the year of grace 1520 on his perilous mission. He was but 24 years of age, yet for more than two years he had been a prisoner or a fugitive. Now he was an outlaw, a price was set upon his head, and Danish spies and informers were following like bloodhounds on his track. On the southern shore of Lake Run is still standing the barn of Rankhyttan, its walls built of massive logs roughly squared by the axe. In this barn, Gustavus worked for good men Arendt passion, threshing grain till a servant maid discovered the corner of a gold-embroidered collar sticking out above his homespun coat. Youth is not always an advantage, and perhaps, if Gustavus had been older, the girl would not have been sufficiently interested to make the discovery that betrayed him. So Gustavus must continue his wanderings. On the western shore of the lake is a long, low peasant's house built of hewn timber with overhanging second story and low roof. You can see the house plainly from the car window as you speed by, standing on a promontory surrounded by a grove of birches. This is the cottage of Ornas. Here Gustavus had taken refuge, and here the brave woman, Barbro Stig's daughter, in the darkness of night, let our hero down with a towel from a window in the loft to the snow-covered ground outside, whence a trusty servant, standing ready with horse and sleigh, 
drove him to a place of safety. And when, in the early dawn, her treacherous husband returned with a Danish bailiff and a posse of twenty men, he found his bird had flown. The chronicler sagely adds, It is said that ardent passion never forgave his wife this deed, and really there seems to be no good reason why he should. At Isala, on the banks of a river tributary to Lake Run, the noble outlaw took refuge in the hut of Sven Elfson, the woods ranger. And just as he was warming himself before the oven in which the busy housewife was baking bread, the Danish spies burst into the room. They began to cast suspicious glances at Gustavus, notwithstanding his homespun suit, whereat the good woman struck him smartly over the shoulders with her bread spade, crying out, What are you standing here and gaping at? Have you never seen folks before? Out with you into the barn. Never could the spies suppose that peasant woman could treat a noble youth like this, so they went their way. Soon the Danes seemed to have completely encompassed Gustavus in their toils. So Sven, the ranger, bedded him into load of straw and drove him farther into the forest. Quickly they were surrounded by a bailiff's posse. What have you in that straw? Nothing. We'll see. So the soldiers ran the straw through and through with their spears, but they discovered nothing, and Sven drove on. Now the soldiers came hastening after him again. Drops of blood dyed the December snow all along his route. One of the spears had wounded Gustavus in the leg, but this the quick peasant had seen before the bailiff's gang, and, drawing out his sheath knife, had cut his horse's leg close down to the hoof. So this accounted for the blood and the snow, and Sven drove on again in peace. And so, after many wanderings, being hidden at one time under a fallen pine in the forest, and at another on a wooden height in the midst of a vast swamp, our fugitive at last made his way to Lake Siljan, the eye of Dalarne, and reached Mora village. Here he was concealed, just outside the little town, in the cottage of Tomte Mats Larsson, and here he was saved once again from his pursuers, this time by the ready wit of good wife Margit. At noon of a Christmas holiday, when the wintry sun shone low and the north wind blew, the good people of the Dales came pouring forth from Mura church after service, as was their wont. But now the noble figure of young Gustavus suddenly appears upon a snow-covered mound by the roadside. Here he spoke to his countrymen, here he recited their wrongs, and here he begged them to rise up like men and free their country. When he spoke of the bloodbath and his father's death, he shed tears. But the people were tired of feuds and strife. They wished to live in peace. So they entreated Gustavus to leave them and seek only to save his own life. These sturdy peasants were Gustavus's last hope. Wherever he had wandered before in Småland and Östergötland, he had consoled himself amid all reverses with the thought that here, in the heart of Dalarne, among its brave and liberty-loving people, he could recruit the nucleus of an army to save his fatherland. Hither he had made his way with incredible toil and suffering, hunted like a wild beast and at risk of his life. 
Now they, too, had failed him. In despair, he fastened his long Swedish snow skates to his feet and disappeared in the forest. Day after day, he toiled on through the wilderness, up the valley of Östra Dalelf, sad and dejected. But he must hurry on, for a double price had been set on his head, and the hirelings of Denmark were in hot pursuit. Wearily, he forces his way north through the vast forest, and at last sees the majestic mountains of the Norwegian Fjeld rise before him. For his poor, oppressed, downtrodden native land, he had now no hope, and, outlaw and exile, he will seek an asylum among the eternal hills of Norway. But hark, he hears a sound behind him. Turning, he sees two swift skid runners speeding along his track. Were they Danish minions come to drag him back to an ignominious death when safety was in sight? Here, they speak. Come back, Gustavus, they cry. We Dolacarlians have repented. We will fight like men for fatherland. Come back and lead us. Should he return? The fate of Sweden, aye, the outcome of the Thirty Years' War, the fate of Europe, the salvation of the Protestant faith, all hung upon the decision of that fair-haired, full-bearded young Swede, as he stood leaning on his staff on that winter's day amid the snow in the northern forest. Yes, he returns joyfully. With his two friends, he hurries back down the valley to Mura. Here, the peasants of the east and west dales chose him lord and chieftain over Dalane and the whole realm of Sweden. Sixteen stalwart lads were at once placed around him as a bodyguard, and soon two hundred men enrolled themselves under his command. Gustavus himself was everywhere, encouraging the people and gaining recruits. And the old men observed that whenever he spoke, the north wind blew, and this they had of old for a sign that God would give success. Early in February, Gustavus had four hundred peasants enrolled under his banner. With this little force, he appears suddenly at Copperberry, takes prisoner the royal bailiff of the mines, seizes the money that had been paid in rent and taxes, and possesses himself of the goods and wares of the Danish and German merchants. He divides the money and goods among his followers and disappears as swiftly as he came. In this first expedition, Gustavus showed the instincts of a successful commander. He struck for the sinews of war and dealt them out to his men with ungrudging hand. But he soon returns with an army of 1,500. It was Sunday. He speaks to the people from outside the church, even as he had done at Mura. His words were convincing, his little army potent. The miners of Copperberg swear him fealty and take the oath of allegiance. Gustavus now leaves his growing army in charge of his lieutenant, Peder Svensson, and travels to the neighboring provinces of Helsingland and Gestrikland to arouse the populace. But the news of the revolution in Dalane had reached Stockholm and the leaders of the Danish party marched forth with an army of 6,000 to quell the insurrection. Svensson met them with 5,000 men of the Dales at Brunbeck's ferry on the Dal River, near the southern border of the province. The leaders of the royal party were surprised at the numbers of the insurgents, 
and at the strength, for the Dalesmen shot arrows clear across the broad river into the Danish camp. How can so large a force be supplied with provisions from this wild country? asked one of the Danish commanders. And when some Swedish gentlemen told him that the Dalekarlians were content to drink water and, in case of need, could eat bread made from the bark of trees, he sagely remarked, A people who eat wood and drink water, the devil himself cannot subdue, much less any other. So the Danish force began to break camp for a retreat. But in the meanwhile, Svensson had secretly crossed Dahl River by a ferry six miles lower downstream and fell upon the Danish army in the act of evacuating its position. The Dalekarlians were armed only with bows and arrows, axes and clubs, but so fierce was their onset, and so terribly did they use these homemade arms, that they drove a part of the enemy into the river where they drowned and put the rest to utter rout following their flying and shattered columns far down into Westmanland. So, says the old song, we drove the Danes out of Sweden. There were yet two more years of fighting and sieges, but Gustavus marched on with his patriot army from victory to victory. On June the 6th, in 1523, he was unanimously elected King of Sweden by the Riksdag, then Stockholm surrendered, and on Midsummer's Eve, June 23rd in 1523, King Gustavus Vasa, then but 27 years of age, made his triumphal entry into his capital. He rode a horse richly caparisoned and was surrounded by knights and young nobles, all mounted and wearing brilliant armor, and was followed by a vast multitude of the populace. The procession rode first to the cathedral, where Gustavus, kneeling before the high altar, returned thanks to the Almighty God, who had so miraculously led him on and given him and his people the might to complete the deliverance of their country. So was Sweden freed forever from the Danish yoke. So was founded the great Vasa line of kings. End of section 37 this recording is in the public domain. Recording by Max Schörlinge.